Hello and welcome. My name is Julie Clegg and this is World Class Investigator, the podcast for those of you who want to rise to the top of your profession, build an influential global network of like-minded professionals and create a legacy of integrity and excellence. I'm glad you're here. And once again, it's time to take another step in your journey towards becoming truly world-class. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the World Class Investigator podcast. This week, I have with me Terry Wilson. Now, Terry is a former RCMP detective, and he was with the hate crime team. So very, very interesting individual with uh, lots and lots of information to share about hate crime and all of the issues around that very topical subject right now. Uh, So I'm really thrilled to introduce Terry. Terry, if you could, um, it would be most useful if you could just share with everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, who you are, and what brought you to this place in your career. Sure. First of all, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I started hate crime investigations in 1995. It's a bit of a story on how I get started. I I was made a detective in January of 1995, and I was late for my very first detective meeting, my CID meeting. And at that time, prior to um, prior to just prior to that. The provincial government of Ontario, because I worked for the London City Police in in Ontario, they came out and said there had to be designated hate crime investigators in every department throughout Ontario. So in 1995, London had to designate somebody. Because I was late for my meeting, I was assigned to be sort of in a robbery, break and enter, car theft section. But because I was late, they said, yeah, you're the hate crime detective now as well as doing all the robberies and, and, and B&Es and everything. But we had to designate somebody, you're designated, essentially because I was late and nobody else wanted it. And I thought to myself, I was like, I have no idea what a hate crime is whatsoever. But I was so excited about investigating break and enters and robberies and stuff. It just sort of passed without even thinking about it. Um, then, so they sent me on a course. We I went on a course with Dino Dorio, who is like the godfather of Canadian hate crime in Toronto. Found it interesting, but really, I came from a very small town in Ontario, very white small town. Hate crime never even never even came to my mind. April 19th, 1995, four months later, five months later, after I was designated, like everybody else in the world, I watched Timothy McVeigh, the, the aftermath of what Timothy McVeigh did in Oklahoma City. And I went, hmm, that's kind of interesting what that guy believes in wait a minute, I think there's other people in London that believe that too. And sure enough, after about a year of investigation, I'd under, uncovered um, two fairly organized hate crime groups within London, Kitchener-Waterloo area. One was called Northern Alliance, and the other one was called the Tri-City Skins. And from that day forward, for the next 28 years, 25 years, um, I investigated organized hate throughout Canada. I spent about 15 years in, uh, in London. And I spent another 13 years in British Columbia, where I was assigned to the, the BC hate crime team that dealt with hate crimes throughout the province. Over the course of my career as a hate crime investigator, I was designated a, an expert in hate crime, um, and I lectured, you know, all over North America um, to police officers, teachers, to everybody that wanted to hear. Because again, once I get started talking about this stuff, I I can't stop. So. You might have to cut me off at some point because I'll just keep going for days and days and days. So, so I hate crime investigator for about 25 years. Um, I now um, consult on hate crime investigations, on policies throughout um, throughout Canada, throughout North America, throughout the world, really, uh, because the basics of hate crime, the fact that people are targeted for who they are, is one of the most, in my point disgusting criminal acts you could ever do. So to give to give people the idea of why hate crime is such more significant than other crimes, because I get that question all the time, why should we treat a hate crime any different than we treat a, an assault or a break and enter to somebody's house? It's just a crime. The, the, the difference is, is because if you, uh, if your house gets broken into, 
you can get a dog, you can buy better locks, you can move, you can get an alarm system. You can do things that make you feel better that that crime won't happen to you again. But if somebody commits a hate crime against you because you're gay or a person of color or a transgender person or a woman or anything like that, what do you do to protect yourself? You can't change who you are. So you always feel like you're a victim. So that's what makes it one of the most um, aggravating circumstances or aggravating crimes that, that I, I feel that happens. Yeah, because it's so personal. It's, it's directed right at who you are as a person. There's not, it's not your it circumstances. Is. It's not your living conditions. It's, not, no. it, it's right down to your very being. Um, it's, it's down to the color of your skin. It's down to your sexual orientation. It's down to your sexual identity. It's down to things that are you. It's, 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 it's not the fact that I happen to be living in this bad neighborhood or I happen to be do this or I happen to do that. Nothing. It's, it's who you are. And, uh, that's, you know, and that's, that's a sentiment. That's just not what I say. You know, the Supreme court of Canada has come out and said, that's why it's such a disgusting act. That's why it's, why it's such a, an incredible, um, incredible targeting of people. And that's why, you know, if I get my house broken into, yeah, my neighbors might feel a bit uncomfortable, everything like that. But imagine the community, the the, uh, the gay and lesbian community, the transgender community. They all feel like they're victims, even if they don't know the victim of that crime, because they don't know if they're going to be targeted either. Right. So it affects it affects a community massively, and so that's that's why I sort of take, I I, I actually now call it I take offense to it. It it, it offends me, you know, and I'm a you know, I'm a white 50-year-old male, you know, I am the least likely person ever to be targeted for a hate crime. But um, I've, uh, I've sat down for victim, with victims for 25 years, and, and although I, I can understand what they're going through, um, and, and it just tears me apart for what they do, it's, it's just amazing. And some of the way the victims handle it, they're, they're just amazing people. Wow. That's, I, you know, I can only imagine the types of stories that you have. And I, it's, you raise an interesting point there that I just wanted to, it was actually going to be one of my questions is, have you, have you found that over the years you have been surprised at the, the level of hate? Has it increased? Has it decreased? Do you become immune to it? Sounds like you don't. Sounds like you're still as offended, if not more offended, by all of the hate that you've seen. Um, yeah, and I, I don't. I, I don't think. I think as a police officer nowadays, um, you should be offended at, at crimes against people. It's you know not not to take your objectivity away, but but the passion to help those victims. And when it comes to hate, those victims are true, true victims. The fact that they have done nothing but be them. And yeah, the, the level of hate nowadays, well, you know, and, and I'll tell you right now, the level of hate in North America, you know, and we could put a date on it, the date when Donald Trump gets elected, the level of hate throughout North America goes up. There's no question, no question in my mind. There's no question in any other groups that have monitored hate throughout North America. And I would say the rest of the world, it will include Western Europe, has increased as of that date, you know, and there's, there's going to be a lot of American people that are not going to hit, like me saying this, but the simple fact is if you have a government, um, a person in control that, that not to say that he's a racist, but he has laid a, an intolerance that allow racists to say, see, the government, the government says this is okay. So they take their level of hate even farther. You know, Charlottetown is not the first time racists have marched throughout the United States, but it's the first time that they really thought that it was acceptable to do that, right? I've been to a lot of, I've been to a few Klan rallies. I've been to, you know, cross burnings. I've been to marches in, in, in the United States. And I can tell you, they always thought they were doing something wrong. It excited them that they were doing something wrong. They thought that they were doing something wrong. Now, the tide has changed. They think they're doing something right. And that's why hate has grown massively. They see themselves as doing something 
that is acceptable. And that to me is just an absolute, it, it is terrible. And that's why the rise of the right throughout North America and throughout uh, Europe should scare a lot of people, right? You know, we have a far-right leader, um, you know, people being elected in Europe. We have um, right-wing leaders being uh, elected in, in North America. That should scare a lot of people because hate is going to absolutely soar when it seems that it's an acceptable thing to do. And I guess that's like anything. If somebody receives... If somebody feels like they're on the line as to acceptable and unacceptable behavior, but they are validated by somebody in authority. So this is just not being validated by your peers or validated by, you know, your bunch of friends that you can look at and go, well, they're doing it. So I'm going to do it. And none of us are getting caught. So we must all be okay. But when you're validated by your peers or, you know, by your government, then well, you're, yeah. it becomes a complete completely different um, atmosphere and a completely different scenario. Huge. You can live in that, you know, that social media bubble that we all live in. We only like certain things and everybody that we like likes us back and it all feels good. But as soon as somebody from outside that bubble, Steve Bannon the other day said, wear racism like, if they call you a racist, wear it like a badge of honor. That is a guy who stood next to the president of the United States and was his advisor and now you're seeing racists throughout the world hear that from, from a guy that they look at as a person of authority. It gives them the thumbs up to do what they have to do for their belief. And to me, that's the scariest thing in the world. It's terrifying. It really is. It's, um, you know, as a, for me as a parent and seeing that, you know, the next generation, there's a, there's a lot of fire in this next generation, a lot of... Um, you know, but they're looking for leadership and they're not finding it and they're taking this leadership on themselves. You only, you only have to see that through, the, through watching all the, these kids come out of school and march through the streets um, in response yeah. to the, you know, the, the hate gun crimes, violence. the violence, the gun crime yeah. in the United States. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's, those kids are, are spectacular. And what, what I will say is that the rise of racism throughout you know, Europe and, and North America is on the rise, but the core members of organized hate really isn't. So, you know, you have guys fluting in and out. They have always been here. The core races throughout North America have always been here. You know, the, the blood and honor guys, the hammer skin guys from British Columbia, you know, the Northern Alliance guys in Ontario, they're always, they've been here since the nineties when I was started to do it. You know, the Hammerskins in the United States have been there since the late 80s, early 90s. They've always been there. The difficulty is, is now they have a platform to recruit and to, and to validate their recruitment through people like Steve Bannon, through people like Donald Trump, through people like, that, that, that have that tolerance for racism. And they see it as, as, a, as that tolerance as a, as to push them forward to increase their numbers. So now is the age that racism or, or racists are going to increase their numbers and we need to stop that. Yeah, because, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, and you see it everywhere in the world right now, it, it, things feel very unstable and, uh, and I'm sure that that's always been the case in every era. But, um, you know, I can only speak for the era that I live in and uh, things feel very uncertain. Things feel very destabilized with these, um, you know, we're, we've got, political unrest in various places and, I, and not just little bits of political unrest, but we've got large scale political unrest in many different parts of the world right now. And people are clamoring to, for some security and some stability, some identity, uh, something to hold on to. And, uh, and you see when, you know, when people are more stressed and when people are more anxious and more worried about the state of the world, they're more likely to be open or susceptible to, to listening to points of view that maybe are a little more extreme. Uh, and absolutely. And at, the, at this time, we are actually in pretty decent economic shape throughout Europe and throughout North America. If the economy falls, you are going to see a drive to extremism because, and it always has, we've lo I've looked at charts over the last 30 years. Mm. The simple fact is, is when the economy gets worse, the drive or the recruitment of extremists, of, of right-wing extremists, increases. And likely it is because they look at people of color or um, 
whatever group they're targeting and say, those people are taking jobs away from us. The anti-immigration trend. And right now we have a massive anti-immigration trend throughout the world. Yes. But our, but the economy in the world is all right. Mm. If it falls in the next five years, we're, the extremism will be, it will mushroom cloud. It will, it will go crazy throughout the world. So we need to get a handle of it now. We need right. to know who's who in the zoo. Yes. Because if we don't, five years from now, if the economy falls or three years or whatever, mm. those people will be poised to recruit more, um, more racists, more That's people into their fold. Yeah. And it's, it, it's a scary thing. It is scary. Yeah. It scares me. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely worrying. And the number one way we get a hold of the recruitment is we have to get a hold of what we would in Canada um, call hate speech. We can't give them the forum to recruit people. Right. Um, we have to be able to get a handle on it. So how do we control hate speech in a, in a, in a world of, um, you know, the internet and where people have, uh, you know, the ability to, to have basically whatever kind of audience they want, first of all. And yeah. then secondly, uh, this movement towards, um, you know, free speech where people are unrestricted in what they say. And I think some people interpret free speech as something completely, you know, outside of really what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and part of my lectures used to be, you know, I'd, I'd have a classroom of a hundred people and I would say, and in Canada, and I would say, who here believes that we have free speech in Canada? You know, a hundred people would put up their hands. Mm. And I would say, no, we have freedom of expression. And there is a grand canyon of a space between free speech and freedom of expression. Yes. It, it, it is a huge difference. The, the balancing act, so the balancing act with free speech, we'll call it free speech, mm-hmm. it's called different names, but free speech, is to balance somebody's ability to to criticize government, to criticize other people, they're allowed to do that. I'm all for that. I'm 100% for that. Yes. But we have to balance that with the detrimental effects of certain speech in this world. Right. Nobody in this world has free speech. The United States thinks they have free speech. They have the First Amendment. They say they have free speech. They don't because they have some borders on speech. A guy cannot have photographs of children involved in sexual acts, mm-hmm. send it out over the internet and hide behind the First Amendment saying, well, that's my freedom of speech. Yes. Because it's a crime in, it's a crime in the United States. Yes. So they already have a border on free speech. But when it comes to hate, the US doesn't. Canada has a border on hate speech. Right. Canada says 99.9999 infinite speech is accepted in Canada except for a very small sliver of hate speech. When you are detrimental to another race, color, religion, ethnic origin, woman, there's a whole bunch of categories there. Mm. If, you, if you are detrimental, if you, are, um, if you equate them with, with animals, which mm. a lot of hate speech has, you know, they equate Jews with rats, black people with monkeys, gays and lesbians with the AIDS virus. Yeah. That in Canada is illegal. You can't That's do that. Fascinating. And 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 you can see that correlation, that demeaning correlation when somebody is reducing a you know a human um in that way. And yeah, but that's fascinating. I actually didn't I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and the reason they do that is because if you make another race, color, religion, ethnic origin, so on, so on, dehumanized, mm-hmm. then it's easy to target them. It makes people more comfortable to target them. Right. You know, Nazi, Germ- Nazi Germany is a perfect example. Yes. In Nazi Germany, they dehumanized Jews. They made them equate them with animals. Yes. There's videos in 1933 of videos, films in 1933, equating Jews running across Europe, inhabiting Europe like rats. Yes. And the reason they did that is so it made it more palatable for them to be interned in concentration camps by the German people mm. because they didn't see them as human. And if they're not human, well, it's not so bad. Yes. That's why propaganda is so hurtful because we go down that slope of dehumanizing a race, color, religion, ethnic origin, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, it makes it more palatable to target that group. And it's not at all. It's not. And the Supreme Court of Canada says, no, we will not do that. That is, that is 
not useful communications. That's not useful speech in Canada. Right. And really, that's what it is. Every other speech in Canada is useful. Yes. That, that, what, what is the goal of that speech? Well, the goal of that speech is to humanize the Jewish population, the, the, the people of color, mm. the gay and lesbians, to dehumanize them. Well, that's not useful speech, so that is illegal. Um, <clears throat> in the United States, they don't do that. Mm. And that's the problem. The First Amendment in the United States, the way the United States has dealt with freedom of speech, is a failed experiment. And the reason I say that is because most proponents for American-type free speech say, well, you can self-censor. What you can do is you can turn off the TV. You can turn off the internet. Therefore, you don't get to see that message. We can say what we ever want, but you, as an individual, have the right to turn something off. Mm. Well, if that was the case, in 1995, the, the, essentially the internet exploded about 1994-ish. Mm -hmm. Um, in 1995, the first hate site came on called Stormfront. Right. If, if the idea that you could self-center, the world's population would look at Stormfront and go, that is just stupid. Right. And we're going to turn it off. Stormfront wouldn't exist any longer. Yes. It existed for 25 years. Not only did it exist for 25 years, it was the first. 25 years later, there's tens of thousands of hate sites. So not only did, did we not turn it off, not only did that thinking not work, that but it actually grew. So the self-censor argument doesn't work. Yeah, so what we need to do is have governments come in and say, legislation, what is useful speech? Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the Supreme mm. Court of Canada, but what is essentially useful speech? We accept all useful speech. Hate speech, not useful in our society whatsoever. Mm. So therefore, if we're going to stop people, you know, there is a criminal line. And the criminal line is very, very, it's a very high standard in Canada. Mm. So, you know, we don't, we don't willy-nilly charge people with hate propaganda. 319 of the criminal code is hate propaganda. Yes. 319. Um, that's hate propaganda. We don't, there's very few people in Canada's history that have been charged with that. I've been involved in, in two, uh, two hate propaganda, I've been involved in hundreds of hate propaganda uh, cases. Mm. But of only two of those people have been charged criminal because the standard is so high. Interesting. So, so now the differences in Europe, obviously you've worked all over the world and you've got experience in seeing, um, you know, the, the impact of hate crime and how it's, how it's policed, how it's investigated, how it's dealt with by the courts, how it's viewed by the governments. Um, are there differences in different parts of the world as to what constitutes a hate crime and uh, how that's dealt with? Yeah, the core elements of, of criminality are essentially the same. Mm. You know, you're targeting somebody violently um, because of who they are. Those core elements are essentially the same throughout different courts, different lands. Mm. You know, there are some variations of of who they believe to be an identifiable group. In Canada, up until 2016, for hate propaganda, identify a group only it included five types of people. Now it includes, I think it's in the range of 11. Right. Um, because we, because Canadians, Canadian legislators saw, you know, we need to expand the size of identifiable group for hate propaganda. Before 2016, uh, women couldn't have been targeted for hate propaganda. Mm -hmm. It was only 2016 that, that the gender was included in uh, the hate propaganda section. So Canada changes their legislation as they see fit. Do we think it should have been done earlier? I do, but mm. it wasn't, but whoever. Germany, again, the core elements of, of hate speech in Germany, fairly the same, you know, just, you know, essentially their wording might be a bit different, but, but fairly the same. It's, it's very significant. So in Canada, if I use Canada as an example, mm -hmm which every Western country is similar to Canada, except, and I keep, not that I'm bashing the United States, except for the United mm. States, but Canada essentially has, well, how about I start it this way? In Canada, you can never be charged with a hate crime, mm. ever. There is no piece of legislation in Canada that says you arrest somebody and charge them a criminal charge for hate crime. That's not it. In Canada, you get charged with hate propaganda, which essentially means that, that words are against the law. Mm -hmm. Or 
or you're charged with a substantive offense, and at a sentencing, you get an increased punishment if it was motivated by a crime. So there's a there's a a sentencing, an additional sentencing if it's motivated by crime, but you're still charged with the assault. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a, 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 a four gentlemen, call them gentlemen, four skinheads walk around a corner in front of in a gay bar as a guy walks out. Yeah. They lay the boots to him. Mm-hmm. They lay the boots to him. Police officers do a great job. They get there, arrest everybody. We see all their clothing, what they said to the victim, everything like that. We charge them with assault. Actually, we charge them with assault bodily harm. Mm-hmm. Assault bodily harm. They go to They go to court. Some of them plead guilty. Some of them go to trial. But at the end of the day, they're convicted of assault bodily harm. Mm. At that point, the Crown Council says, wait a minute, judge, don't pass sentence yet. We have a whole bunch more information to give you before you pass sentence. We want a sentencing hearing. Mm. And in that sentencing hearing, we, we can essentially give them everything in their life. We go back and talk to their high school teacher, and, and they said, yeah, well, they had problem with the with the black kid in the class or they had a problem with a gay kid in the class. Yeah, that's fine. That's given. So the judge gets a full picture of this racist prior to passing sentence and usually a greater punishment, which is what the section's called, 718.2 of the, of the Canadian Criminal Code. The greater punishment is, is enforced and people are given more punishment than what was usually given for a simple bodily harm. But you, but it's more about hate. But they're not charged with a hate crime. So in the news, all the time you'll say, "Why didn't the RCMP charge this guy with a hate crime?" You can't. There's no piece of legislation. Nobody gets charged with a hate crime. It's a sentencing application, which is better. And I'm telling you why. In California, in California, you get charged with a hate crime, a hate assault. Let's say. The, the problem with that is, is that's another fact and issue that you have to prove in California to get a conviction. So if it's sort of tenuous, prosecutors in the United States won't go with the hate crime stuff. He's, eh, you know, he is a racist, but uh, they just charge him with the assault. Or if they take him to trial for the hate crime assault and the judge doesn't believe that it was motivated by hate crime, the person was, is acquitted. Right. That this is right. So this makes sense to me. So what? So it's it's actually doubly hard down there to get a conviction for any offense hate attached to it because you're not just proving that the offense happened and all of the usual parts to, uh, points to prove when you're trying to prove an offense, but you've also you also have to prove the motivation at that point, which is is often impossible. Right. So in Canada, we don't have that. We convict the person of the assault. He touched the, He touched another person without that person's consent. Mm-hmm and cause bodily harm, yeah. period. The guy is convicted. We then have a sentencing hearing. If the judge doesn't believe it was motivated by hate, then he just goes back to the previous sentence. Yes, but the conviction still because the person's, but the per, But the person's already convicted to the assault, so the victim still has some semblance of, of, justice, um, and, yeah. of justice and justification and all that sort of stuff because he's convicted of assault. Mm-hmm. Italy has the same thing. Germany has the same thing. England has the same thing, or the UK. Mm-hmm. They have this sentencing, um, this greater punishment sections of their code to deal with that. Yes. In Canada, any criminal offense can be a hate crime. From cause disturbance, the simple yelling out of a window. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody goes down the road, there's a black person on the street, and they yell out the window, hey, and the police stop them and arrest mm-hmm. them. He's charged with cause disturbance, but because it was motivated by hate, we can have a greater punishment. Um, so any, all the way to murder, anything from cause disturbance to murder can be fall within that hate crime section. It's, it's, it's a fantastic section and a section that police officers in Canada and many parts of, of the world don't recognize. And so therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't get used the way it's supposed to be used. We should be using it. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's there's both positives and negatives to that. So the positive being that the that you get you get the hate element of it brought into it where it can't affect the conviction, and and the conviction is the most important thing. Is having this person held accountable for what yeah. they did, uh, not necessarily in that moment how they did it, but at 
the same time, I see a downside to that in that how does that affect statistics in terms of recording um, hate crimes and statistic? And, and this is what and, and I, I have this unfortunate badge of honor in in Canada. Yeah, I had a chief of police who was just joking, but we had a, we had a StatsCan report that that came out and essentially said that um, that the city I was working in was fairly highly ranked in hate crimes. And he came to me and he says, "We never had a hate crime till you showed up." And the whole idea was it was the identification that we did have all these hate crimes, but they weren't recorded properly. I, I can tell you that that if we if we yeah I can understand the statistical problems, but that doesn't but the hate crimes aren't going away. They're just not properly recorded. So violent defenses against people are still happening. We're just not recording them as hate crime. So the stats, yeah, every every place I went to, you know, the 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 stats. And I used to give lectures. We used to teach police officers all over North America, and we teach them the identification of a hate crime, and one of the things we told them is, just so you know, now that you see it, you're going to record it as one. And your chief is going to come to you one day and say, how come we have so many hate crimes? And the simple fact is, is because we're properly identifying it now. More people are being, more police officers understand what a hate crime is, and they go out and properly investigate it. The big thing about that stats thing is, I can understand, oh, that, that could be a problem for an administration. But what it is, is that the specific services for victims are properly supplied. Because if you are a victim of a hate crime, there might be other services that victim might need that may not have been offered to that victim if they were just a victim of a simple assault. Right. As we've already mentioned, there's a unique, um, there's a unique community element. There's a, there's a, there's a knock-on effect to hate crime because of the fact that it's tied in so closely to somebody's identity, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's uh, gender, whether it's race, whether it's religion, whether it's uh, sexual orientation, whatever that is, um, because of the very personal nature of that. Again, it's not like having your car broken into or having your house broken into. It's this very personal thing that affects not just you, but everybody else that identifies as that individual that has that attribute with you. And I can tell you with the, with the BC hate crime team, if we had a hate crime against, you know, a fairly significantly large um, gay and lesbian community in Vancouver area, if we had one victim of a hate crime and it was recognized properly as a hate crime to, the, to, to somebody who is gay or lesbian, we could reach out to that community too and see because there's other people that are, that are affected mm-hmm. by that, 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 that services can be offered to, to those people. That are that are affected by it as well because they think they're being targeted. If it was just recorded as a simple assault, we would have never reached out to that community. Community, and there'd be people that maybe would be suffering as a result of of, of a poor identification of a hate crime. And that's 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 the troublesome part I have. So I always got the stats where people were like, "How come our numbers are going mm. up?" Well, I'm telling you right now, your numbers are going up. <laughs> Not, and and in the 80s, numbers went through the roof with seatbelts. Right. Numbers went through the roof with sexual assaults in the late yes. 80s. Domestic violence went through the roof in the 90s um, because people were properly identifying it as a domestic violence or a sexual right. assault. Right, and those things didn't occur that before. Should, like in the 70s, I mean, just trying to get a police officer to go out to a domestic assault was almost impossible because yeah, it wasn't recognized no. as, you know, it was, it was, it, it was declared a civil It's a family case. thing. Yep, it's, uh, it was it's a civil. It was a family. It was how... It was how those families dealt with the problems. We're not, that's not a police right, matter. Exactly. Right. Now, now it's, now it's different. Now we know the problems with domestic yes. violence. Hate crime. I want to see the same thing happen with hate right. crime. I want to see those numbers mm-hmm. go up because right now we have special services for sexual assault victims. We have special services for domestic violence victims. We sort of need to go that route. You know, those numbers need to go through the roof. So chiefs throughout Canada and they're willing mm. to do it can justify why they go, we need more money or we need to do a lot resources there. We need to do that. The allotment of resources is totally dependent on the police mm. department on the numbers right. they have. So I want those numbers to go through of the course. roof. A lot of people will be angry about me saying that, but you want those but numbers. But it's not that you're, you know, not, you're not saying that you want increased 
pay crime, what you're saying is that you want people to record this stuff properly. You want everything that is right. motivated by hate to be recorded correctly so that, uh, right. because right now, um, you know, just as we saw in the past, it, if these things don't get recorded correctly and if these things are not recognized for exactly what they are based on their motivation, then, you know, people can't access services. People are not dealt with. The victims of these incidences are not dealt with appropriately based on the trauma that they've suffered or the victimization that they've suffered um, that was the motivation Absolutely. of the crime. I, so I agree with you completely. It's not. Absolutely. And, and, and the offender not only needs to be held accountable, but he needs to be held accountable for e- even at a, at a different standard because he's, he's targeting people because it was right. I know, I know. And the courts in yeah. Canada. And that's something in that offender that's, it, you know, it's, a, it's their personality that's or their, you know, yeah. the, the person that they are that have selected and targeted an individual based on who they are. So this is a, this is a human yeah. against another human, you know, that's directly based up on their personal beliefs, their upbringing, their motivation or their influences to go out and target somebody that they see as different from them. And that, that kind of leads me on to my next question, actually, that I wanted to ask you is what, sure. in your experience and having dealt with a lot of offenders, a lot of victims, what, what drives people to commit a hate crime? What, what is it that mostly reinforces or develops the belief in somebody, um, that, that is strong enough to go out and inflict violence or hate? on another individual for whatever reason? I think it comes at two folds, really. Uh, uh, a violent or, or an offending racist. An offending racist is motivated by one, ignorance, um, and two, fear. They're, they are fearful that their way of life is changing and that, um, and that, that fantasy land of the way of life they think they, they should have is 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 leaving them and what the reason i say is a fantasy land because it never existed to begin with right you know in canada we have always been a multi multicultural country you know section 15 section 27 of our of canadians charter says you are a multicultural canada it so they the, the races in canada have a fantasy that we should be a white nation for if we're going to take the far right white nationals it's a white nation, and it's it never has been. It, it never has, so it's a fantasy land they have. So their fear that their lifestyle that never existed is changing motivates them. Their ignorance, and, and one thing with social media is is these people um, live in this bubble. We all live in sort of a social media bubble where we like certain things, and the algorithms tell us what we should watch, but Take that by a thousandfold, and that's the social bubble that racists live in. They discount any argument that is contrary to the racist, racist beliefs. They discount any of those arguments, and they're only supported by other people that have those beliefs. The internet has made this a huge problem. You know, in the 80s, racists used to get put out flyers on windshields, right? Or Don, Don Andrews used to have meetings in basements of bars. That's how racists met. Now, now there, there's no such, and, and I believe using the term when it comes to racist crimes and racist terrorism acts, they say, well, he was a lone wolf. That does not exist any longer. The term lone wolf does not exist because that person was supported in their beliefs by somebody else. Could be somebody throughout the world, but they were supported in their belief. They were not a lone wolf. They were built up with all this propaganda to believe, to be supportive in this belief, and then they went out and acted violently. Um, they don't have lone wolves when it comes to racist violence any longer because they all are in their basement on the internet being supported by other racists throughout the world. Dylan Roof, when killed 18 people in a, in a black church, supported on the internet by, by what he did. Supported after the fact of what he did by other races. You know, um, these so their ignorance in not looking outside of those bubbles causes a huge problem. And we see that with sex offenders as well and terrorists. I mean, it's, you know, very yep. much the same thing is that at one time, 
um, you know, it was much more difficult and you were much more likely to get caught because the way that you had to communicate with other people that could validate what you do or could uh, share your thoughts and views and, um, you know, you could support each other. And, you know, it was so much harder back in, say, the 80s or even the early 90s to find other people. And, and the risk of getting caught was higher because you, you had to leave your house and go and do something physical, have a physical meeting. Right. And in the 80s, in the 80s, the police that were targeting those terrorists, racists, whatever, could get inside that person's bubble. It's much more difficult now with the internet to get inside somebody's bubble to disrupt that thinking. So what we need to do is stop the propaganda from going in there. Stop the, stop the hate material from going in to these people's bubbles, supporting violent activities. If they, and again, the police throughout the world are not the thought police. We could care less what racists think. We care what racists, how racists act or act out. So we want to stop people from acting out. I could care less what a Nazi and neo-Nazi thinks. I pretty much know what he thinks. I'm not there to stop what he's thinking. I'm there to stop him from acting out. And there's many things that, that luckily being part of the BC hate crime team and being part of the London police, we did to stop racists from acting out, not to what they think. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a great example. And for, pe- for people that are, that are sort of interested in this, one of the things you have to do is take people's anonymity away when it comes to internet racism or internet violence. So in, in 1990, 1996, um, I identified a group called Northern Alliance, membership of about 13 guys, all hung out in a bar together, lectured by a guy named Raphael Bergman, very intelligent man. I say intelligent, well-read man, wasn't intelligent because he was a neo-Nazi. But he got these guys together and he would talk to them and they all got them in a big fervor and stuff like that. They didn't act out violent. There was nothing criminally we could do to them. So I went to my superintendent, Dave Lucio, and said, what I want to do is take their anonymity away from them. Because if their anonymity is gone, their likelihood to act out violently lessens. If, if we as the police say, we know who you are and we know what you're about, then their likelihood to act out violently is gone. So I hand-delivered a letter to each one of those members of Northern Alliance saying, we want a meeting with you guys at the police station on a Sunday morning. That knowing that none of them would attend, none of them ever attended, got a lot of, got about 13 letters from lawyers back, but that's about it. But what we did was tell them, we know who you are. We know that you're members of Northern Alliance. We know that, that this is what your belief and we're essentially drawing a line in the slant. The line in the sand is the criminal line. If you cross that line, we'll be on top of you like white on rice, if you excuse the pun. And they're, they're a likelihood to act out really yeah, less. Because you, you know who they when are. I was part they, of these, you know, it's not going to be they know, And they know who you, Yeah, there was no more of this secret squirrel stuff. And I can tell you, organizations like biker organization or biker enforcement, terrorism enforcement uh, throughout Canada took that model and ran with it. Every time we got a racist identified online, we went and knocked on his door. You know, if he was a 14-year-old kid, we'd, not, we'd make sure we knock on his door when his mom and dad was there and say, this is what your kid's doing on the computer, just so you know. We need to talk to him. His likelihood to act out violently at school or anywhere else lessens because the police exactly. now know about you. Yeah, right? exactly. There is that fear so, of, and, is there any, like, and I guess that... No, I get a question that comes up for me there is, do you find that, so this purpose of identification and, and we see this often in school shootings and, uh, you know, where we're wanting to not draw attention to the criminal, draw attention more to the victim. Do you find that when somebody is identified as being a, a perpetrator of a hate crime or a member of a hate group, whatever group that is, that that increases their sense of pride or does it increase their sense of shame? And, and I'm assuming that, um, you know, some of these people feel, um, you know, question their beliefs or at some point do. Is it more likely oh, to sense pride? I can, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can, I can tell you that it, it, the answer to that question is yes. In some cases, it lessens a person's, you know, there was lots of people that said to us, you know what, this is too much work 
the police showing up my door is too much work. I'm done with these groups. And we would show up the next day and we say, fine, if you're done with this group, we need you to hand over your material. We'll dispose of it. And they guys would give us their, their, their bomber jackets. They'd give us their racist stickers. They would give us everything. Other guys would say on the internet, hey, Terry Wilson came and visited me. I guess I'm sort of a, a big deal racist now. So some of them took it as a badge of honor that, the, that Terry Wilson would show up at his door, and some people would, would take it as a shame. Our goal was not to do one or the other. Because again, we're not there to tell them what to think. We're not the thought police. No matter what you think, we're not the thought police. We were telling them, we know you, and you cannot, and we, we would give them the criminal code sections. If you act out criminally, this is what could happen to you. We were doing it as an information session. Here you go, right? It's now your choice if you want to act out like that. And in many instances, guys just went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't want, I thought it was cool. I thought getting the bomber jacket was cool. I thought getting the swastika tattoo on my elbow was cool. It's no longer cool if the cops are showing up at my door. I'm getting the tattoo removed. And, and you know, we would say, where do you want to get it removed? Because we know actually some uh, some tattoo removal places will remove it for free if it's a racist sort of thing. So we would encourage them to to leave the organization, but we're not there to talk about the thought. We're just there to say, look, this is what could happen to you if you act out criminally. Um, so yeah, shame, badge of honor. Sometimes it went either way, <laughs> you know. But that was our goal was to just yeah. And I, and I really like your so, you know your your mantra, your attitude that you're not the thought police. I mean, you you know you fully believe that people are free to believe and think the way they think and believe, and the, and and hold whatever views they want, whatever whether it's political or whatever. We you're not going to change the way people think, but and I and and that feels like such a feels like a very pragmatic and sensible and rational approach that, yeah, people are going to think what they think and you can't, you're not going to influence people to think a certain way, but what you don't want is them acting out in, on those beliefs, if those beliefs are harmful to somebody else. So what, in whatever way that is, whether it's verbally, whether it's physically, whether it's on the internet, whatever way that is, you know, if providing somebody is not persecuting or victimizing anybody else based on their own beliefs, then as far as you're concerned, that's not your, uh, that wasn't your goal or your remit. No. And, and, and I was always been a cop to, to catch people that acted out criminally and being a hate crime detective didn't change any of that. My goal was to deal with people that acted criminally motivated by hate. That was it. That was it. And Every other police department in Canada, as well as in, in North America and Western Europe, one of, their, one of their slogans is prevention. So whether it's sexual assault prevention, seatbelt prevention, whatever, you know, road hazards prevention, prevention is part of your, your goal. So hate crime detective was no different. Our, our goal was prevention. Identify a racist, go introduce, go introduce yourself as this is a preventive act. This is a way we could prevent this person from acting out. I could care less what he thought. I could care less what he did online. As long as he didn't cross the propaganda line, do what you want. But we know you. Right. And that's, uh, that leads me really to my last question, which is, um, and, and you may or may not be able to answer this, but have you, do you find that as public tolerance or acceptance for certain things goes up, whether it's positive or negative, that crimes go up or down? So I'm thinking, um, certainly here in Canada, our, uh, and, and I think across the United States and Europe, um, it's, you know, we don't have, a, as far as I'm concerned, the negative connotations that, the, that were there for, um, gay, lesbian, trans, uh, anybody that identifies a, a certain, with a certain sexual orientation. There seems to be much more acceptance now and much more, uh, you know, with gay marriage and, uh, you know, there's, there's more acceptance. Do you find that uh, hate crimes go down when society is more accepting of something? Or do you find that um, it, it doesn't really make a difference? I don't think so. I think essentially hate crimes have been on a slow incline since the 80s. And the majority of that incline, well, sometimes it's been a drastic incline, but that incline has gone up because the police deal with hate crimes and are reporting it, right? But statistically, it's going up. But crimes against those people, 
whether the general public, because the people that do, do hate crimes are not the general public. Racists are a small core of people um, that are going to do it. Whether it is generally accepted or not, they don't accept it. And their small bubble of information um, doesn't allow them accept it. So they, they, they go out and commit the crimes, no matter what the general population thinks. Because you, you got to think to yourself, where in Canada would, would it be less likely to have a fairly organized racist group? If I, was an un, if I didn't know any better, I would say, well, why would they be in Vancouver? There's nothing, you know, there's, there's um, Richmond, which is pretty much a Chinese city. There's a massive gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, two-spirited um, gr- uh, community out there. You know, the black population in Vancouver is, is the Vancouver metropolitan area is getting bigger. Why would a white supremacist group be there? And if, the, if, you know, if you looked at society's general acceptance for those groups, in Vancouver, probably one of the most accepted areas in Canada, and yet one of our most organized hate crime groups is in the Vancouver area, right? So they could care less about general acceptance of certain lifestyles. They know that in their little core bubble, their fantasy world of what they want, um, that makes them act out about it, right? Yeah, maybe... Maybe it has the opposite effect. Maybe the the more accepted these things become, the, these people, these um, you know, these views and these lifestyles, and um, you know, and how how much more intermingled our society becomes, and people are more open, and pe- and there's more access to information. Maybe that the fact that it's more in your face for some people is is more of a catalyst for violence as opposed to less. Yeah. And, and they can pick it, and they can pick and choose. They can cherry pick their um, their information. So if in the Vancouver Sun or Star, whatever, um, or the Toronto Star puts out an article about um, somebody of color committing a crime, mm-hmm. they'll pick that news article and say, "Go see," right. ignoring the rest of the newspaper that might be about white right. people who committed crime. But they'll cherry pick the yes. one. So being a more diverse community is a is a problem for the racist, but it also makes a racist easier because they can cherry pick their information. Right. And it also gives them an enriched target. Community. Right. Of course. So there's, so, it's just a bigger, you know, a bigger target. Um, you know, what, what does the racist do in Northern Alberta? Not exactly the biggest target community in the yes. world, but in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Montreal is a huge problem right, right. now. Um, they have massive communities that are being targeted by racists. And they're right next door, right? Yes. So that's that's the problem: is their targets are more readily available for the racist. Yeah. Um, wow, the the one the the one thing I, I did want to sort of go a little off here, well, not a little off, but a little thing here is is the the how you equate hate crime and terrorism. Right. Um, to me, the world has many of the world politicians and investigators and, and major police departments have separated the two. And I think that is, is, is a bad thing Mm -hmm. because the, you know, the definition of terrorism is a violent act against civilians, usually uh, for a political motivation, right? They want to change the world. Mm. ISIS wants to stop Western world. A hate crime is a violent act, usually against civilians and only against civilians motivated by hate. Mm. The difference is, the only difference in those definitions is political motivation and hate motivation. So if we look at the fact that Dylan Roof walks into a black church, kills, I think it's 18. Yes. If you look at Dylan Roof's beliefs, he believes that black people shouldn't be humans. Right. He believes that the 13th Amendment in the United States is wrong, that there needs to be a political change in U.S. society and that black people should be more subservient, we should go back to slave mentality, mm. everything like that. So Dylan Roof is charged with a hate crime, but the police department down there says it's not terrorism. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how is that any different? His hatred is politically motivated. Right. Jans Breswik in, in Norway, everybody in North America said that's a huge hate crime, not terrorism. Mm. Yes, it is. It's hugely terrorism. Yes. 
He wants a political change in that society based on a white supremacist belief. So hate crime and terrorism can be the same thing. And the problem is, is we've separated the two. The other day, there was bombings in Texas. Mm. And the police, the police department spokesman came out and said, you know what, we think it could be, you know, we're not discounting the fact it might be a hate crime, but it's definitely not terrorism. And I'm thinking, well, well no, they're not different. Only in a few occasions is it different. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly with white supremacy, I mean, white supremacy generally comes down to a political motivation. And in, in my, you know, I, I haven't investigated a huge yeah. number of these, but, I, you know, I've, I've investigated enough that I understand the the political ramifications and the differences in, uh, you know, that most, I would say, I would agree with you that most hate crimes are, could be, could be classed very closely as political, politically motivated. And if they're politically motivated, it's an act of terrorism. And if it's an act of terrorism, it's no, but there's no reason why it can't be a hate crime and terrorism together. Why can't we use the same term describing these people? Dylan Roof not only is a hater, is a neo-Nazi, he's a terrorist. Right. And I, I and we've got this view of terrorism as being way, way, way more serious than hate crime. And yet the, the motivation is, is almost the same. The impact is the same. The uh, victimization, the fear, uh, the pervasiveness is all the same. Yeah. Now, now, saying that, you could have a white supremacist who attacks a gay man um, because he doesn't like gay people. It's got no political motivation. That could be a hate crime on its uh, That could be totally a hate crime on its own. But, and, and it, you could have the same thing for terrorism. But in some cases, those two are linked massively. You know, ISIS attacks Western, Western democracy. They're attacking Americans because they're Americans. Well, wait a minute, you're attacking people because of who they are. That falls right in the breadbasket of hate crime. Yes, it is terrorism, but it falls right in the middle of, of hate crime as well. Why aren't we jamming these two things together and saying, Hey, if you have a terrorist, there's a greater punishment section in Canada that says not only is he a terrorist, but he's a hater. He should be getting greater punishment, right? He should be getting a, a bigger punishment. Yeah, you know, the guys, where it falls apart is when somebody kills somebody because you can't get greater punishment for first-degree murder in Canada. But other acts of terrorism, let's, let's call it what it is. It's a hate crime as well. Let's jam them together and, and, and not separate the two because the news had made has made since 9/11 has made terrorism a really bad thing yes and hate crime not so bad right it's you know um, what i mean it's, yeah. it's, uh, you know that's that's his belief and we don't want to get in the middle of his belief no 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 get in the middle of his belief yes right get in the middle of the belief and put him as bad as a terrorist you know the toronto 18 mm. not only are terrorists but they're haters and if they're haters hate crime section may may apply to them isn't that interesting? What that that's a, a such a fascinating way of looking at that, Terry. That I've I've never. I, well, first of all, I guess I never really considered the um, how similar the definitions are of when you look at terrorism and you look at hate. That the issues that you raise and the points that you raise are so valid. And I and this this conversation is uh, you know literally I could talk to you all day about this. I have so many questions. We're, uh, we're, we almost need to wrap this up, but I do just want to ask um, one last question, which is, do you have any advice for new investigators or people that are coming into this world and really are interested in exploring hate crime as, uh, as an area of investigation? Uh, what advice would you give to investigators that want, that want to pursue this? Well, field? The, the first thing I would give is, is, Know your legislation. So if you're an American in a, in a different state, some states in the United States, not all of them, but some states have hate crime legislation. Mm. Know your legislation because that, that creates the boundaries of what a hate crime is or isn't. So it, it's better, it's easier for you to recognize it. Right. And easier for you to do it. In Canada, know your head, know the 718, know the identifiable groups, right? And, and, and know that. So know your legislation is a big thing. Right. But the biggest the biggest piece of advice I can give to brand new investigators is if you walk into a crime scene and you have no idea why this happened, don't discount the fact that it might be motivated by hate. Mm. If you walk in and go, why did this happen? I have no idea. Always keep that piece that it might be motivated by hate in the back of your mind. 
And the way you can justify it is ask the question. Police officers are, are very poor at asking one specific question. They don't ask the victim, why do you think it happened? Right. Why do you think it happened to you? They'll ask the question, when, what time, just the facts, man, that sort of stuff. Mm. They're very good at that. But why? They're afraid to ask the why. Why do you think this happened to you? I think it happened to me because I'm gay. Right. Where are you going? Up the hate crime road. Yes. Instantly up the hate crime road. There you go. Ask that question of every victim. Why do you think it happened to you? Well, I think it happened to you before that. Because your next question is going to be, well, why did you believe that? Yes. Well, because these are the words the offender was saying to me when he was kicking me. Right. Perfect. Now you're starting to develop a whole hate crime case. Right. So if you don't know why a crime happened, don't discount the fact that it might be motivated by hate. Um, and, and learn your legislation when it comes to hate crime. Because it'll always be there in the back of your mind. You walk in and see a swastika on a wall. You know, you could have, I have many times where I have drug officers go in, tear down a whole bunch of marijuana plants, and there's nothing but Nazi stuff all over the walls. Right. And not till three weeks later do they say, oh, we were in this house that had Nazi stuff all over the walls. Wait a minute. What do you mean you're in this stuff with Nazi stuff all over the walls? Yes. Because they were so focused on getting the grow, to getting the marijuana, yeah. to getting the coke, whatever, that didn't impress them as being something that would be a criminal intelligence. Right. And it was, oh, it was really, a bit interesting, really but didn't, uh, they didn't want to take Yeah. Uh, the guy's a bit of an ass, so he puts ass stuff on his walls. We're here to get dope. Right. No, 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 no. It's a much broader thing. Those little pieces of information, if that guy acts out violently towards somebody because of the race, color, religion, ethic, mm. that is a huge piece of information that's going to hurt them yes. when it comes time for court. And, and particularly sentencing. Um, Absolutely. When it comes to sentencing, sentencing and your drug officers are taking pictures of all that, yes. woohoo, we're, we're, that's fantastic. Yeah, amazing. And the last thing, the last thing I, would, I, I would say when it comes to that is let's not soften what a racist is. Right. And the way I, what I do, what I say is that is because the media and, and now I'm hearing police officers say, they call it the alt-right, the alternative right. right. They're not. They're neo-Nazis. They're white supremacists. Let's not, that term was created by a white supremacist. Richard Spencer created that, that term to soften his image. Right. And, it, and all it does is it politicizes hate. So it gives it a legitimate almost a legitimate reason while, you know, this is my political views and this is my, you know, I'm entitled to, you know, it become, comes back right back to the free speech thing. Um, Absolutely. And they, and, and they see that as, as a legitimate, and if somebody starts using all right, it's on CNN. Well, he's part of the all right. No, he's not. He's a white supremacist. Yes. Let's call it what it is. He's a white supremacist. He's a neo-Nazi. Yeah. He's used all right because the white supremacist movement has always tried to use different terms to make them look better. Right. Uh, yeah, and they're not. This, they're racist. Yeah. I've seen it in things I've investigated, and you often see this with uh, with white supremacist groups, is eventually they will attempt to legitimize their views and their cause by creating some kind of political party. You saw it in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, it, absolutely. It's always been that way. So it's, it's not a new thing. This is not a surprise to those yeah. of us that have investigated this. No, Britain first, everything like We're white nationalists. We're white separatists. No, you're not. You're white supremacists. You're neo Nazis. You're Nazis. Right. Let's not yeah. soften it. Let's let's not let's not have those terms unless the person is saying it in the thing. But don't refer to him in your police reports as well. He's a member of the alt right. No, 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 no. Call him what he is. Don't be politically exactly. correct. Yeah. Because the, I, because the facts are he's a Nazi. I love this message, and this is a message that uh, it's funny. I think this has gotten lost over the years. Back when um, back when I was investigating this stuff in the UK, it was back then. It was the National Front, and then they became the British National Party, and and you know, so we've so we've seen that uh, political uh, movement over the years. But I agree with you that this. Uh, the people are using the alt-right almost as the politically correct way to say neo-Nazi. And I, I agree and, with you. We don't want to make this politically correct. It's not. It's not politically No, yeah. We should not be politically correct when it comes to a racist. Yes. He's a racist. That's right. 
the end. Absolutely. And on that note, that's a great way to uh, to end the interview. So, uh, Terry, I so appreciate you being here. The, the amount of information you've given today, the amount of um, knowledge that you have in this subject just blows me away. And I, it may well be that I ask you to come back for a second time. If we receive a lot of questions about this podcast, I may actually have you uh, back in a, in a couple of months to, to talk about this a little more because I think there's just so much that, that we haven't even covered. But for now, I'm, I'm so grateful. How can people reach you if they want to, to talk to you or, or refer a question to you? Yeah, well, I have a website, you know, uh, www.hatecrimeexpert.com. Go on there and, and you can fire me messages or questions through that website. And I will answer them as soon as I can. So that's probably the best way to get, get a hold of me. Again, I, tra- I travel a little bit, so that's the easiest way. But go through the website, and that's the, that's the best way to do it. Okay, perfect. So that's www.hatecrimeexpert.com. Yes, it is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I, uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for, uh, for being uh, a part of the World Class Investigator community. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, You've, uh, this has been another episode of the World Class Investigator podcast. And uh, thank you for tuning in. If, uh, if you have any questions, you have any comments about this podcast, then please reach out to me. Either leave a comment under the podcast or contact me on Twitter or uh, via uh, social media or via my website. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. So thanks again for listening and I will see you next week. Well, once again, thank you for listening and for your incredible support. If you're not already a part of the World Class Investigator community, find me on Twitter at HuntedJulie and I'll be happy to point you in the right direction. Until next time, take care.